0: good thing. I love how loud we are during that few minutes of family. We're talkative. We're loud. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're engaging and meeting people. If you're an introvert, congratulations, you made it through. The worst part of the whole service, you made it. The rest of it's easy. You can grab a taco and hide in the corner and we will find you and talk to you and make the rest of your afternoon miserable. Um, but hey, I'm Garrick, and I'm really excited to be with you guys this morning. Uh, do we have any Star Wars fans in the house? Any Star Wars fans? Fantastic. I'm a very casual fan, so please give me grace. But I did find myself asking a question as I was studying Esther this week that I was not anticipating. And my question is, is George Lucas a, friend, uh, a, a fan of Esther? You've probably never asked that question, And I don't know if you really ever need to. But here's where I'm going with this, and here's why I was asking that question to myself. Like, man, was George Lucas ever a big fan of Esther? Because if you're a casual fan or if you're a a real deep fan of Star Wars, you know that I think early on, George Lucas kind of created a framework for the finale of all his movies, And if you haven't noticed, it's usually there's kind of a big battle going on, right, between empire and the rebels. And then there are three specific conflicts happening at one time. And then they just pan from one conflict to the next as they're slowly resolving. Does this ring a bell for you? Like we go back to my generation, like the very first Star Wars, A New Hope, you have like the Death Star that's getting ready to obliterate the planet that has the rebel base on it. Conflict one. Conflict two, like TIE fighters, X-Wings, flying around the Death Star. Who makes it? Who doesn't? Conflict two. Then the third conflict, you know, you have uh, Luke being like kind of chased by Darth Vader as he's trying to get, you know, like the photons into the center of the Death Star to blow it. Am I ruining the movie for anybody? (laughs) I mean, I'm just assuming that everybody has seen Star Wars, right? But you can go on. I mean, it doesn't matter. You go, same formula for Return of the Jedi, right? They just added Ewoks into the mix. Like, it's the same thing. We're not even gonna talk about the prequels because we all know that Jar Jar Binks wasn't in all of them, but he ruined all of them. So we're just going to skip those, and then you go into, like, the new one with Ray and Finn and Poe. It's the exact same formula, right? Yes? Yes. Do I need to explain it to you? Do you remember Kylo Ren, right, and Ray are fighting the emperor, and Poe's doing the battle in the sky, and Finn is on the ship trying to break down the command ship so all the other ships fall to the ground? You've seen this, right? Okay, you just don't remember. Okay, well, here's why I'm getting into this. If we look into Esther, where we're going today, chapters 5, 6, and 7, it's the exact same framework. It's this big conflict between the Jews are facing extinction, a genocide, due to the edict that Haman got the king to sign off on, And so that's the big conflict, and yet we're going to see three individual conflicts taking place. Esther's going to have to go into the king and survive. Haman is coming after Mordecai to try to kill him. Is he going to make it? We don't know. And then Esther goes back into the king and not only has to get the edict changed or removed or something's got to shift to save her people, but she's also got to figure out how to take out the second in charge, Haman. That's our third conflict. So I'm just trying to give you a framework for where we're going as we're going to be covering a lot of ground. When Sean wrote this series, he came to me and said, we got one troubling week. And the good news is I have confidence that you can take care of it. The bad news is I'm out on vacation. So here I am. We're going to be covering three chapters of Esther Esther together. And as we cruise together, I want to invite you to be thinking about two questions as you hear the word written and as you think about the story. I want you to think about these two questions. As I listen to the story and as I reflect on the story... What do the characters reveal about humility and pride? And the second question I want you to have in the back of your mind is, as you reflect on the events that are happening in the story, what does it reveal about God and how he works in the life of his people? Okay, so those are two questions I want you to keep in front of you as we're going to cover a lot of story and a lot of text. Don't worry, if you find yourself a little bit lost, you will pull up, we'll get to the next conflict. You know, we'll be back in a situation where there'll be X-wing and TIE fighters going at it and all that kind of stuff in between. So with that, let me pray for us and invite God who is already here to prepare our hearts and ears to really hear not just my words, but what he has for each one of us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. We thank you for its timelessness. We thank you for its relevance into our life here in 2023. Father, we thank you that we can look at a story of old and it has such practical implication for us today. And so, Father, would you help us open our minds and open our hearts to the truth of your word that's going to commingle with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I trust that you're going to give each one of us something to think about, some way to be encouraged, and something potentially to chew on for the rest of the week. So would you open our minds and hearts now, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen. So open up with me. I'll have some of it on the side screens for you or open your phone, however you want to follow along, to Esther chapter 5. Let me read Esther chapter 5 for us. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 here to get us going. Okay. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out for her the golden scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Then the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asks. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king again asked Esther, now what is your petition? It will be given you, and what is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Esther replied, my petition and my request is this. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come together to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Then I will answer the king's question. So right off the bat, some of the context here. Um, You know from chapter 3, the Jews are currently under an edict that's going to take place in about 11 months that all the Jews are going to be exterminated. At this time, the king doesn't know that Queen Esther is a Jewish girl. And that her people are about to be annihilated. And so Mordecai, if you remember from chapter 4, comes to her and pleads with her and saying, God has made you queen for such a moment as this. Go to the king and plead with him for mercy. But you have to remember that people didn't just stroll into the throne room of the king. They had to be invited. And in fact, if you put yourself there without an invitation, you probably don't know this, but your life is really threatened. Now, it's easy for us as we casually read this book, and you probably know the end, that it didn't end there, that Esther doesn't die as she approaches the king. It's easy for us to minimize the threat that she's under. But if you study the historical context, you know that they have pictures of the Persian king, that there used to be this guard that would sit next to the king's throne with this massive axe. And at any moment that the king commanded, he could wield that axe to somebody and take off their head. And so there's very much a threat, and let's not forget that Xerxes is not a casual, cool kind of king, right? He's prone to rage. You're going to hear in the story that he rages, he has anger issues a few different times. Let me share a story that um, Herodias, a Greek historian, shares, just so that you understand the context, There was once a man who approached Xerxes. This is before this, when they were going out to fight the Greeks that Sean mentioned. This is the Persian-Greek war. And one of the dads came to the king and said, I have five sons, and they're all going to go into battle, but would you spare my oldest son so that he can take care of me in my old age in case all my sons die in this battle? The king does not extend mercy. In fact, with that request, the king says, this is what's going to happen for you for the audacity of making such a request. He goes out, he finds this man's oldest son, he cuts him in half. Literally, cuts him in half, and he puts each side of his body on the side of the road that the army marches out to go fight the Greeks. That's who King Xerxes is. And so I don't want us to forget that Esther as queen doesn't kind of casually walk in like, hey, what up, king? I got a request to make for you. I'm your queen. You're just gonna give me whatever I want. She is literally taking her life into her hands by entering the throne of the king. This is a moment where Esther is living with all kinds of courage, Now, where does she get this kind of courage? Janine did a great job last week reminding us that it it came out of this three-day fast. It came out of this prayer closet that she is uh, coming out of, that she's been praying, that her people have been praying. And so there's confidence there that God is with her. But you probably missed, look with me back in chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace. We hear that and like, all right, she got dressed for the party. The language there in the Hebrew is that she put on the kingdom. This is a moment where Esther, we're seeing character development in Esther. That she's gone from a young girl who is exploited by empire To a woman who was hiding her Jewish heritage, just keeping her head down and trying to survive. And now, in confidence and persistence and commitment, she's gonna stand up against empire to save her people. This is speaking about her character development as it talks about her putting on her royal robe. Esther has grown up, she has matured, she has found her voice. She's moved from victim to survivor to servant leader on behalf of God's people. This is why in 5.3, did you notice that the king refers to her as Queen Esther? You probably don't remember this, but we're almost halfway into the narrative, the story of Esther. And this is the very first time that Esther is going to be called Queen Esther. See, I think what's happening in this moment that makes her so strong, yes, it's born out of the prayer closet, but what's happening in the character of Esther is for the first time she's embracing that she's Hadessa, this Jewish girl who's connected to the covenant promises of God, and God has placed her for a moment such as this to be Queen Esther. And the two identities for the first time are coming together, and she's stepping into her moment that has been working That God has been setting up on her behalf. Now, two interesting questions that come out of this that you might be asking. Do you remember in the story, twice the king's like, hey, Queen Esther, make your request, make your petition, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. Do you ever find yourself wondering as you read the story, give it to him, Esther? make the request. He just said, I'll give you half my kingdom. Well, first of all, it's an idiom. He doesn't really mean I'm going to give you half my kingdom, but it does let her know that she has the favorable disposition right now of Xerxes, who's a little bit emotionally unstable. So you're left going, Esther, why don't you make the request? The king has let it be known twice. Once when you're inviting him to the banquet, the second time at your first banquet, why doesn't Esther make her request? And I think we have to understand that Esther's plan, born out of the prayer closet, is both dangerous and delicate. See, she's doing more than just trying to save her people. She's doing more than just trying to get an audience with the king and uh, ask for his mercy. She's trying to prepare his heart that she would have his favorable disposition because the request that she's about to make is more than just save my people. There's other aspects of it that think about it for a minute. The king has already made the edict that the Jews would be exterminated in 11 months, and here comes Esther striding in saying, surprise, I'm a Jew, and I need you to reverse or change or do something about this edict. How does he do that and save face for himself? Now, granted, it was Haman's plan, but he's the one that gave his signet ring to Haman. So he's culpable in this whole thing. He's somewhat responsible. So Esther in her plan has to figure out how do I put all the blame on Haman and not blame the king who's part of it, but it was really Haman's plan. So you begin to see how delicate her plan really needs to be. And on top of that, she not only needs to save her people, but she needs to remove Haman. Haman is Xerxes' most trusted advisor. We're told in chapter three that he's elevated above all the other nobles. So how does she go in and change the heart of a king and move the edict and also get rid of Haman? You begin to see the complexity. And so this is in part, I think there's a reason why she pauses. She throws one banquet. We're going to hear about a second, second banquet in a moment. And, and why does she invite Haman? Because of the delicacy of her plan. She recognizes that I need to get Haman and a king in a room I need Haman to know and think that I am loyal to him, that I'm trustworthy, that maybe even Haman thinks that I'm affectionate toward him. And get him in the room, and that way when I do the big reveal, and the king's anger is flared up, and he's prone to rage, that rage has a place to go, and it's Haman. So you begin to see the reasons why I don't think in this moment she freaks out and goes, oh my gosh, I can't, the moment's too big. Some scholars will try to tell you like, oh, Esther's freaking out and she's not really sure. So she's just kind of delaying because she's scared. I don't see that in this story. I see a woman who came out of the prayer closet, who's walking in confidence with that God is with her and that he's at work enacting this plan. So here we are, second conflict. Right after this, Mordecai, who's in happy spirits according to verse 9 of chapter 5, hey, I just got off this great banquet, and then he walks by the king's gate, and there's Mordecai who won't bow to him still. And so it lets us know that that, uh, Haman is really frustrated. He goes home, and verse 11, we're told that Haman boasts about his wealth and his many sons and the way that he's been honored by the king, and now he is like the specialist person in the kingdom of Persia because not only did he go to one banquet with just the king and the queen, but he's the only one that's been invited to a second banquet. And you can see and feel the pride of Haman kind of oozing from the page. He goes to his wife, Zareth, and he's complaining to her. He says, look, I've got all these things, but I find no satisfaction in them because of that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. He won't pay me honor. He won't bow to me. And Zareth, his his wife, and his friends say, well, here's what you can do. You can erect a 75-foot pole and impale Mordecai on it. That was the preferred means of execution in the Persian kingdom. It not only impaled the person, but then they would raise the pole, and it was a way to shame the person in their death. So Haman thinks, this is great. We should do this, and he's going to start running to the king to enact this plan. So here we are, conflict number two, right? Are you with me? Okay. Conflict number two. Look with me in chapter six, verse one. The night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh's, two of the king's officials who had guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition had Mordecai received from this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, said his attendants. The king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole. His attendants answered, hey, it's Haman. He's standing in the court. The king says, bring him in. Look with me in verse six. When Haman entered, the king asked him, hey, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now this is classic. Like this is comedic irony for the divine rider of Esther at its best. Now Haman thought to himself, who is there the king would rather honor than me? Like it just oozes with arrogance, right? The king comes in, he's coming in early in the morning, bothering the king, but he's second in command so he can do it. The king obliges, he says, you know, what do you think I should do for the man that I would delight to honor? And Haman's like, I must be the man The king would delight to honor. And so as we read in the story, Haman goes on and says, well, I think you should put this man in the king's robe and put this man on the king's horse and get one of the nobles to guide him around the city saying this is what the king does for the man that he delights in. Like Haman is so excited. I think Haman, I'm making an inference here. I can't prove it to you. But as I read the story of Esther, it seems really clear to me Haman has climbed to the pinnacle. The only position left for him is the kingship. He's right below the king. And when he daydreams in the day and when he dreams at night, he dreams about being king. Because when he thinks about what else is left for me to honor, I've got wealth, I've got riches, I've got position, I've got status, but I'm not king And so he says, this is what you should do for me. Now, here comes the great irony, verse 10. He says, go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and get the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew, who's sitting at the gate, who won't bow to you. I wish the Bible was set to video. Because this is one of the choice moments where I just want to be a fly on the wall and I want to see Haman's face. Not only am I not going to be honored, but the honor that I desperately long for is going to be given to my mortal enemy And he has to, I mean, talk about eating crow. He becomes the attendant. He becomes the town crier for Mordecai. He's the one that puts Mordecai in the royal robe, and he sets him on the horse, and he leads him around town with a a voice not to get him killed, but as softly as he can. This is what the king does for the man that he delights in. What an absolute reversal. Now, one of the things I want to highlight that I'm going to put a pin in and we're going to come back to is the coincidence, seeming coincidence of all of this. Think with me for a moment. It just so happens that the king can't sleep. It just so happens that he's reading from the reign of the king, the history of what Xerxes has done. It just so happens that he remembers that Mordecai saved his life five years ago and nothing was done for him. And it just so happens that Haman comes in with a plan to kill Mordecai at the very time the king is looking to elevate Mordecai. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment and put a pin in it. We're gonna come back later as we talk about kind of the ultimate application of these, all of these chapters together. Here's what I'd like to say. There are two wonderings that I have. And unfortunately, I only have time for one. So maybe Hunter will allow me to slip one into the podcast or when you're eating tacos, come talk to me and I'll share the second one with you. Here is my wondering. How did Mordecai carry the reality that he had done a great work for the king that had gone absolutely unnoticed and unacknowledged. How did he carry that? Because if you know anything again about the history, if you go back again to Herodotus who writes that the king always did these lavish things for people who were loyal because there's a way for him to build loyalty in his kingdom. There's a story of two ship captains that helped them in the war against Greece and they get this massive plot of land for just helping the king in a moment. There's another story of a man who helped Xerxes' brother, and in helping Xerxes' brother, he gets to be governor of Sicilia. Big things, like saving the king's life at the end of chapter two is Mordecai's golden ticket. He's won the Persian lottery, and yet zip, zero. No acknowledgement, no praise. And I bring that out because I want to connect it to something that's been going on in my life that I learned a few years ago. I was sitting, talking with my spiritual director. If you don't know what that is, that's just somebody you meet with once a month. And you, they, they're trained to ask you really good questions and to help you think about where is God's hand in your life? And as you guys know, 2020 was tumultuous for a whole host of reasons. COVID and church change and everything in between. And as I was sitting there talking with the spiritual director they pointed out to me, they said, you know, Garrick, you've done a lot of work to forgive individuals that you think hurt you. And you've done a lot of work to forgive events that were painful to you. But it sounds like to me that you still haven't given over to the Lord. The pain that you carry in the reality that you feel that the leadership of your old church never acknowledged your faithful service for 17 years and how you helped bring the next generation into a church that the church might be healthy for the next several decades. When he said those words, you know how you have those moment where you just kind of want to run and hide? You know, you're like, you can't see me. I felt like I was exposed. And I know you're right. For me, one of the hardest things to get over is faithful service that goes unacknowledged. I don't know about you, but I know that in the course of your life, you are going to give faithful service to your team at work. You are going to give faithful service to your spouse. You are going to be a faithful friend to your roommates. And a lot of the work and effort and energy you put into it in being faithful might go unnoticed, unacknowledged, never be praised, and or celebrated. In those moments, we need to remind ourselves, Colossians 3.17, that everything we do is for the glory of God, which is also code for saying God sees every little faithful act you do. And so if you never get the glory or you never get the praise or no one even gives you a thank you, it's okay. And if we're willing to continue to be faithful in the small things when it goes unannounced and unnoticed and unpraised, Christ's character is actually being formed in us in a real, true, deep way. I think that's what Mordecai's had to live into. Okay. Let me ask you this. How do you respond when your faithful acts go unnoticed? Will you trust that the Lord sees? And that in due time, just like he did with Mordecai, he will find a way to lift up and to praise. And even if that never comes, to be confident that he's building God's character in you. Let's go to the third conflict. The third conflict, this is kind of the hand-to-hand combat conflict, right? Think like Luke versus the emperor, Darth Vader, Return of the Jedi. That's what's happening in this conflict here. You guys are so quiet. You're so respectful. Let's look at this third conflict, chapter 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? I will give it to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who dared to do such a thing. Esther says, an adversary, an enemy. I love in the Hebrew, it's stronger language. She says, a hateful and hostile man, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and he left his wine. Pause for a moment. (laughs) This is the only time in the book of Esther, I think, that we're told that King Xerxes, who loves to party, who throw a 180-day party at the beginning of this book, he actually is such in a rage that he leaves his glass of wine to reflect about what is happening in his garden. So he leaves the palace, but Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was uh, falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs, attended the king, said, Well, you know what? A pole reaching to the height of 75 feet stands at Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, but you know what? We could impale him on it. The king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. So here we are in the third and final conflict. The time has come for Esther to make her pitch, make her plea to save her people and to expose Haman. And if I can for a moment, I just wanna reflect with you about the wisdom and the cleverness of Esther. Again, the character development we see from young girl exploited by empire to a woman who's standing up in front of the king, doing God's business and trusting the sovereign Lord has commanded her and given her for this moment. And look with me at her plea. She says, if I have found favor, She's basically saying, I've always found favor with everyone. And she's taking all of that past faithfulness and history and favor, and she's pulling it into this moment, this second banquet with king and Haman. And then she says, if it pleases you, if it pleases your majesty, she shows honor and deference to the king and his position, even though he's a little bit of a trigger-happy man who's prone to anger. She says, grant me my life and my petition. And then with such masterfully chosen words, she says, you know, my people and I have been sold. Which remember what she has to do. She has to implicate Haman. It was Haman's plan, but not point fingers at the king who was still part of it. And so to use this language, hey, the person who was sold, we were sold speaks of chapter three of Haman saying, I will pay money into the treasury if you will give me this edict to destroy these people who will not assimilate. It's masterful. And then she uses the same language that Haman wrote in the edict in chapter three. Destroyed, killed, annihilated. Again, pointing to the reality that Haman is responsible ultimately for this edict and not the king. So we begin to see some of Esther's wisdom her cleverness, her kingdom-given wisdom in the moment. Now, think with me for a minute. The king has left in a rage, right? Haman really has no good options. The king is outside in a rage. We're told by the text he knows the king wants to kill me. I can't go plead for mercy with the king. Now, following policy protocol. Uh, uh, palace protocol, Haman should have left the room when the king went to the garden. Because everybody knew it was illegal to be in the room with the queen or one of his concubines or any woman that's part of his harem if the king is not in the room. But think about if you're Haman. I can't go after the king because the king wants to kill me. But if I leave the room, I just, feel, I just you know, look more guilty So he does the only thing he can do is plead for mercy with the queen. And I think what happens here is that somehow he's not exploiting her. He's not trying to molest her. That would make no sense in the moment. What makes sense in the moment is he is afraid for his life, as the text says, and as such, he's trying to get Esther to listen to his plea, to have mercy upon him, even though he's the one that created the edict that would kill her and her people. And so I think in this moment, he's getting really handsy, like, you gotta listen to me, you gotta listen to me, and she pulls away, and she resides on her couch, and he comes over, and he's touching her, and he's saying, no, please, listen, 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 and the king comes in at that moment as he's grabbing Esther to try to make her listen to his plea for mercy, and the king who already feels like, is there something potentially going on between Haman and the queen, because we've had these these, uh, banquets together, and his jealousy might be a little aroused, like, is there any affection going on between the two? And I don't think there was, but he thinks there might have been, and so that's the final nail in Haman's coffin. And he gives the order to impale Haman. So what do we do with this? There are two applications that I would like to close with to draw our attention to as we think of these chapters as a whole. The first one is this biblical principle that humility leads to blessing, pride and arrogance lead to our demise. Isn't that what we've seen in the story of Haman? Well, we're told in chapter five and then again in chapter six as he goes in front of the king and almost trips over his own arrogance He's such an arrogant individual and it leads to his demise and destruction. We're told three places in scripture, two in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. The God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In Proverbs 16, five, it says, the Lord detests all the proud of heart. And then the writer goes on in verse 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty, proud spirit before a fall. So what do we do with this? Pride and humility. You know, it's hard as a teacher to come in and be like, okay, guys, don't be arrogant. Be humble. Okay, how do we do that? Let me give us one anchor point that I see from the text. If you allow your anger to be greater than your gratitude, it leads you to pride. That's what you see in Haman. Haman has everything. And think about it, he was so distraught that Mordecai, one person wouldn't bow down to him. He could have easily said, eh, what's one Jew? I'm the second command of the king. I've got it all, I've got everything. Instead, he's unhappy with what he has and his anger leads to his own demise. But if our gratitude can outweigh our anger, I think it leads us, friends, to Humility. So one of the practical applications that flows out of this is to practice thankfulness. To recognize that you don't have everything you want and you never will. But every day we can get up and say, Lord, I am thankful for. And as we practice gratitude and our gratitude is greater than our anger, it moves us into the kind of heart disposition that God partners with and blesses. The second and final application is this. The Lord's promises prevail. Can I get an amen? The Lord's promises prevail. One more time. The Lord's promises prevail. Amen. Amen. God is sovereignly moving in human history toward the completion of his promises. Friends, there are no such things as coincidences or happy accidents. May I remember remember from chapter 6 all that thing that I went through about, you know, it just so happened that the king couldn't sleep and it just so happened that he was reading this section of the book and it just so happened that Mordecai was mentioned and it just so happened that Haman came in and it just so happened that the king wanted to elevate Mordecai. Is it just coincidence or is it the sovereign God working through the small realities and events and the ordinary things of our life to move across his promises and to bring them to completion. The Bible would say that it's that, that it's God working in the midst of the small, ordinary events of our lives. There are no coincidences only. There are no happy accidents. It's always the Lord working in the big and the small to move about toward his promises coming to fruition. And here's the good news for us in this you and I are probably never gonna get the Esther-sized moment. You're never gonna be called before Biden and he's gonna say, tell me what the evangelical Christians need. Like, you're probably not gonna get that. But the good news of Esther is that just as the Lord was working to save his people through miraculous miracles in the book of Exodus, Esther reveals to us that God is working his providential promises through in just the ordinary things of our lives, the ordinary moments, the things that seem like coincidences. And here's the invitation for all of us in that truth. If you just remain faithful in the small moments of your life, the things that feel the most mundane, the things that think like, man, does anybody even see this? Like I'm driving my kid to school again. Again. I'm making dinner again. I'm going into the office early again. I'm taking care of an aging parent again. Being faithful in those small, unrecognized moments is just as meaningful and powerful as the moment we see here in Esther. God, if Esther teaches us anything, it's that God moves in the mundane toward his promises. And if you and I just remain faithful in the small things, the day-to-day to our lives, we are being used just like Esther and just like Mordecai for God to bring his promises out to completion. And that's the good news and invitation for all of us in these three chapters of Esther. So just as the Death Star exploded twice... God saves his people, twice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this book. I thank you for Mordecai. I thank you for Esther. Father, I thank you for the truth that you are looking for humble hearts to partner with. Father, so often we're drawn to the big and to the shiny and to the stage and Lord, really what matters is how faithful are we with you in the early morning when we arise, in the moments when we're coming home from work and we're frazzled, in the moments, Father, on a weekend where we're just trying to catch our breath. All of those little moments of faithfulness you use and you're working in your sovereign plan to bring about your promises that will ultimately prevail, that we, get the privilege of being partnered with you in that work. And so, Father, would we learn from this story that we would carry ourselves in gratitude, watching and waiting for you to do great work in the midst of our mundane moments. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to pull out your communion sheet.